Chris Hedges, thank you for joining us. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Excellent. Um, maybe you could tell our um, listeners and viewers exactly how, how you describe your work. What is it you do? Well, I come out of the newspaper world. I was a foreign correspondent for 15 years for the New York Times, spent 20 years covering conflicts starting in Central America, seven years in the Middle East, covered the war in the former Yugoslavia, after 9-11, was based in Paris, covered Al-Qaeda. And then uh, because I was very vocal against the invasion of Iraq, uh, had a clash with the New York Times where I was told to stop speaking publicly about the war. I left the paper and I've subsequently written, I think, 14 books. I also teach at Princeton and a few other places. Um, and uh, and the books deal with cultural, political issues, although I, I mean, I haven't written a lot on war. Uh, I did write my first book on war, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, that was a bestseller. Uh, the the last book I wrote uh, was kind of responding to the euphoria and the giddiness over the proxy war in Ukraine. The, the greatest evil is war. Uh, the war, book before that was on I teach in the prison system, was on uh, essentially use this process of writing a play. I helped my students write a play about their lives. It was eventually published and performed, uh, but I used it to write about mass incarceration. So uh, nonfiction. Um, and, uh, you know, at this point I'm primarily a book author. There is a lot. I do of write, a, good col I do write a column every week. I also have a, a TV show. So yeah, there's that too. <laughs> busy. Fair to say you're busy. Yeah. Great. Okay. I mean, just, uh, going back in time a little bit there to the, the invasion of Iraq and you falling out of favor with the New York times, that, that surprises me actually. So was the position of the New York times very supportive of the government's decision to invade Iraq? Well, that would be putting it mildly. They were, they were one of the major disseminators of the fiction that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Hmm. Uh, and uh, they were a conduit from the white house, from Cheney and, Richard Pearl and others, uh, Richard Fife and all these people uh, into the press and it was self-referential. And then these administrative figures who'd leaked this false information largely would then go on national networks and say, well, it was just uh, you know reported in the New York Times. It was kind of bizarre circular loop. Uh, so yes, the, the, they cheerleaded the war. Uh, and uh, remember this was right after 9-11. Uh, and uh, to uh, in any way question that uh, thirst for vengeance. Um, and of course, Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11. Uh, we had far more Saudi involvement than we did with Iraqi involvement. We didn't have any Iraqi involvement. Uh, but to question that kind of uh, euphoria was to become a pariah. I mean, worse than that. I mean, you know, my was I would come into the newsroom and my message bank would be filled with death threats. It was a very ugly time for those of us who came out of the Arab world. I spent months of my life in Iraq and uh, warned people of the debacle that we knew this would become. They don't, nobody wanted to hear it, including the editors of the New York Times. Right. Yeah. And obviously it's clear to everybody now. And it was, I suppose it was clear to plenty of people at the time that the weapons of mass destruction angle was you know baseless um and but there were people at the time as well making the argument of course that just saddam who 
saying on his own is a problem, the way he obviously slaughtered his own people, the threat he poses to his own people and the West was justification to invade Iraq in that sense. Do you hold any sort of agreement with that position at all? No, it's very, it's very hypocritical because so I, I spent a lot of time in northern Iraq with the Kurds. Yes, he slaughtered his own people without question. Uh, I mean, and, and horrifically. I mean, I was at the uncovering of mass graves of up to 1,500 people. But while he was slaughtering his own people, we were providing military aid to Baghdad to help it beat back Iran in the Iran-Iraq war uh, and, and agricultural credits and everything else. So the notion that we cared about the Kurds is absurd. We were a de facto ally at the height of the Anfal or the murder of the Kurds, hundreds of thousands of Kurds in northern Iraq. Same was true with the uprising after the first Gulf War. So I was in Basra uh, with the Shiite rebels until I was taken prisoner by the Iraqi Republican Guard. And what the uh, Washington did not want to see is a Shiite dominated Iraq, although, of course, now that's what we have. And so uh, they had uh, uh, put a prohibition on the Iraqi military from putting their helicopters up in the air. And once that insurgency or uprising began, the southern area around Basra is primarily Shia, um, those helicopters all went up to gun all these kids down. Uh, and that was us. That was, we were complicit in that. I was there. So the whole notion that, you know, we're going to take down Saddam because he kills his own people uh, is, I mean, for people who follow it closely, was risible. So, I mean, if we if we accept that the the pretext of just doing good for good's sake was a justification for the war, and obviously the weapons of mass destruction narrative fell apart, what what is the motivation then between, behind the American invasion of Iraq and obviously its uh, its allies? What what is in it for them? Because looking back in hindsight now, it doesn't seem like they've benefited in any way from uh, what seems like a massive misstep, to put it mildly. Yeah, it was a massive misstep. You could argue strategically, probably the even more harmful to the American empire and American interests than, than Vietnam. Uh, what was the motivation? The motivation was driven by a bunch of ideologues who don't know anything about war and don't know anything about the Middle East. And they truly believed, and I'm talking about this kind of uh, group, of uh, some of whom I mentioned, Cheney, Pearl, Wolfowitz, and others, who truly believed that they were going to implant in their vision democracy in Baghdad, that that was going to emanate outwards across the Middle East and destroy Iran. Uh, remember, Iran was next after Bag after Iraq fell, uh, that the uh, oil revenues would pay for the reconstruction, that the Middle East would be completely reformed or more than reformed, revolutionized, uh, uh, you know, to become a kind of mirror of uh, Western capitalism, Western liberalism and everything else. Now, you know, for those of us, and I'm talking about the Arabists and the CIA, the Pentagon, uh, the State Department, all of us just thought this was lunacy. Um, uh, and it could only be dreamt up by people who were woefully out of touch with the reality uh, of the Middle East and who were linguistically, historically, culturally illiterate uh, and didn't know what they were talking about. That's that's where it came from. It was a non-reality based belief system. And so I was invited by the State Department because I was a very vocal public critic to say publicly at a State Department gathering at a big forum what they what all the Arabists in the State Department agreed with but couldn't say. I was 
uh, of invited to speak to all the lieutenant colonels and colonels in the Marine Corps being deployed to Kuwait. I was invited by the superintendent of West Point, General Lennox, to speak to the graduating class. That's 1,000 cadets uh, because all there was no division in, in terms of among Arabists, among people who actually speak Arabic and have spent uh, significant amounts of time in the Middle East. This was just folly. Uh, but of course, you know, we, we went ahead with it anyway. Uh, and unfortunately, the press, you know, and that's careerism, uh, to, to challenge that narrative was a career killer. It killed my career. Uh, and uh, there was no, again, there was no daylight between myself and other reporters who covered the Middle East, but they were just realized that to get up and, and say what I was saying was uh, meant paying a cost they didn't want to pay. Is there any way of, in your mind, measuring how Iraq is today versus it was during Saddam's reign. If we, even if we completely accept the war was misguided, unjust, immoral, all, all the things that I would imagine you would say, and most people would, is there an argument to be said that Iraq is better today in 2023 than it was under the, the rule of Saddam Hussein? Well, certainly not economically, because remember, Iraq had a thriving middle class. It had a modern infrastructure. I remember going into Iraqi hospitals they were all built by Swedish companies. They were state of the art. Uh, the, the country doesn't exist really as a unified country anymore. The Kurds have a de facto state of their own. Uh, the, uh, the infrastructure doesn't work. Uh, massive unemployment, uh, massive corruption. And of course, the irony is that uh, Iraq uh, was Sunni dominated. Saddam was Sunni and uh, was a counterweight to Shiite Iran. So now the Shiites run Iraq. In fact, it's a de facto satellite country of Iran. Uh, and then you have all the turmoil in Syria. Uh, uh, so, I mean, you know, we, Saddam was brutal. He was awful. He was murderous. He was everything. So he's a hard person to defend. Uh, but to somehow say things are better, no, certainly they're not better. Uh, they're not better now. Iraq is a, you clash Iraq with, is a sorry, country no longer exists. I mean, we should be clear. Yeah. Would you class yourself as a pacifist? I know. Are there situations where you feel you would be pro-intervention, pro-war? Well, I'm not a, I'm not pro-war. Uh, I spent enough time in war to hate war. Uh, 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 nor am I a pacifist. I mean, I was in Sarajevo when we were completely surrounded by the Serbs, shelled with hundreds of shells a day, artillery, these were big stuff. This wasn't mortars. These were uh, 90 millimeter tank rounds, Katusha rockets, 150 Soviet equivalent of 155 howitzers. These are really big explosive ordinances. Uh, four to five people were dying a day in the city. About two dozen wounded a day were uh, uh, falling in Sarajevo. So uh, if we understood everyone who was in the city that if you didn't pick up a weapon and we were literally, the city was surrounded by trenches. It was kind of like World War One, and every once in a while some Muslim commander would get this idea that in the middle of the night, all these poor kids were gonna climb up out of the trenches and go charging towards Serb machine guns. They'd fire the star bus, starbursts up in the air, which would light up the sky. And then you'd hear the clatter of the machine guns. And of course, you know, hundreds of kids would get killed or wounded. Um, so if, if the Serbs broke through those trenches, we knew that a third of the city would be murdered, slaughtered, and the rest would be driven into displacement and refugee camps, which is what happened in Vukovar, it happened in the Drina Valley. So no, we didn't have 
there weren't any any long discussions about pacifism. On the other hand, and this is a point that I made in my first book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, and in the last book that I did on war, The Greatest Evil is War, is that uh, is that uh, it doesn't save you from the poison of violence. You become infected with that poison just like everyone else. You ingest it just like everyone else. But there are moments, and Sarajevo is a good example, where you are uh, facing uh, forces that seek not only your annihilation, but the annihilation of your family, your community. And I think at that point, most people would pick up a weapon if they're capable to defend themselves. I fully understand it, uh, but it's not a, I don't believe in just war. I don't believe that it's in any way a good, I don't even particularly believe in heroism uh, as a quality. Uh, War is about, it is the, you know, the kind of quintessential expression of the death instinct. Um, It's, it is evil, uh, but there are moments when uh, populations or individuals face the forces that seek their own obliteration. And uh, I think violence, when you engage in counter-violence to defend yourself or defend those around you, it's, let's call it fully understandable and reasonable, but always tragic. It's a a good clear answer and I, I do want to pick up on some of your first-hand experience uh, on battlefields as well because that's that's a fascinating thing to get information but I suppose just to keep on this idea of intervention and war and uh, if you'll if you'll forgive me the uh, invocation of Godwin's law but I feel like it's permissible since we're talking about conflict many would say that World War II was justified and in fact it may have been you know uh, morally incumbent on us to interfere or intervene earlier given the amount of um, you know genocide Hitler was able to carry out and what, what went on before people started to actually push back. Would you consider World War II uh, or intervention or uh, you know opposing Adolf Hitler, would you consider that just war? Well, you know, those are always very complicated questions because you lay the seeds or the groundwork for the rise of fascism and the militarism that gripped Germany going all the way back to the Versailles Treaty, which imposed punitive reparations, destroying the German economy, uh, the financial crash. Remember, in 1928, the Nazis were polling in the single digits. They had no real support in Germany. Then the 28 crash comes, the financial system, global financial system goes under, and the banks uh, instead of giving Germany a break, uh, they give them the loans, but they suck out all of the discretionary spending to pay for the loans, to pay the interest on the loans, so that Vi- the Weimar Republic uh, actually cancels unemployment insurance. This is a time when I think 40% of the insured workforce didn't have work. So this fed this you know, fascist movement, these hate groups. So there are all these factors that go in. In the same way with Ukraine. I mean, I was in Eastern Europe in 1989. I was there when the promises were made to Moscow not to expand uh, NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany. Those promises were broken, repeated uh, complaints on the part of Moscow about the expansion of NATO, stationing of NATO troops, uh, 14 countries uh, being incorporated into the NATO alliance, and we ignored it. I'm talking about Washington because 
uh, one, hubris. They believed now that it was a unipolar world and we could do whatever we wanted to. And secondly, because there was a lot of money, billions upon billions in profits to be made by reconfiguring uh, armies or militaries in Central and Eastern Europe to be NATO compatible. Uh, and that, in the end, doesn't excuse what Putin did, which is a war crime, of course, uh, but also to understand how he was baited or provoked in the same way it goes back to Germany. So it's never quite black and white. Uh, yes, of course, I think World War II was an example where clearly the Nazi machine was only going to be stopped with force. Uh, you can, and you're right, we can go all the way back to the occupation of the Ruhr or Alsace-Lorraine when uh, the French army, and we know now after the war that if the French, which had a massive military machine that crumbled under the blitzkrieg, but that that the orders, uh, the German high command was that if the French intervened, they would pull back. They The orders were to pull back. So uh, yeah, all of that is true. But again, I, I don't like just or good. Uh, it was, mm -hmm. again, a, a, an inevitable conflict uh, once uh, the Germans invaded Poland. Uh, they'd already, you know, dismembered Czechoslovakia and uh, 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 and they clearly were only going to be stopped in one way. But remember, we bombed German cities. Dresden is a war crime. Uh, we destroyed uh, uh, through the Strategic Air Command under Curtis LeMay. Uh, we destroyed city after city in Japan. Those were wooden structures, and we dropped uh, phosphorus or napalm on them to essentially make, start these uh, fire tornadoes, which has also happened in Dresden. And these were civilian tar. Russia and Nagasaki were picked because there hardly, were hardly any Japanese cities left. They didn't have any military value. So, uh, you know, how do we justify the slaughter of hundreds of thousands, probably millions of civilians in Japan or in Germany as just or good? Uh, we can't. Um, it's uh, my uh, uncle fought in the South Pacific. Uh, they didn't take any prisoners. They, they killed, they didn't get many Japanese, but if they ever got any, they usually killed them. And then they were walking around with pliers, pulling the gold teeth out of corpses. I'm, you know, cutting off their ears and putting them on strings, you know, that they wore around their neck. I mean, um, you know, we, we once you get into that realm, words like just and good and they don't work anymore. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'm just being, you know, really hopeless and pessimistic, I suppose, say, but as, as long as there are humans around, is war inevitable? Is it just in our nature that we're going to repeat conflict after conflict? Do you, do you envision some sort of almost utopia-like global community without a military conflict? Is that you? But, you know, aggression is built into the human animal. What you want, what you want not built into the human animal is an assault weapon. Uh, <laughs> You know, the UK has strict gun laws. You don't have, we have two mass shootings a day in this country. It doesn't mean that Americans are more aggressive than Brits, although maybe they are, I don't know. Uh, uh, but it, it means that any idiot can buy, go into a Walmart and buy an automatic weapon and a, essentially a military-grade assault rifle, which are useless for hunting. I used to hunt with my relatives in Maine. I don't hunt anymore, but... But, uh, you know, you couldn't use the caliber of the bullets too small to take down an, a large animal like a, a stag or something or a deer. I mean, unless you want to put like 10 bullets in it or something, you use a 30-30, use a much larger gauge weapon. So these are weapons that are designed to shoot people. And 
Uh, so no, human aggression has been with us and will always be with us. Uh, what we don't want to do is flood uh, nations or societies with weapons. Uh, and this is, you know, you go back to uh, Sierra Leone and the diamond trade and all, uh, you know, same with Yugoslavia. Everybody had an AK-47 in their house. Once weapons like that are just proliferate, uh, then uh, the acts of uh, mutual slaughter uh, uh, rise significantly. So it's, it's, it's the proliferation of weapons and then the arms trade, which is, of course, flooded, especially the global south and parts of Africa and it was with, uh, with weapons. So, you know, and, and with the kind of ensuing chaos that comes with that natural human aggression having access to uh, assault rifles. Or worse yeah yeah it's it's incredible to those of us across the pond and elsewhere in europe where we don't have the the second amendment america has how easy it is to obtain access to deadly weapons of this this sort and obviously when you compare it like for like in terms of murder rate and the data always you know instantly highlights the fact that yes it is the weapons that makes the difference and i'm just wondering in terms of reform in the united states it feels to me like the you know the horse has bolted there are already significant number of legal firearms out there not to mention all the illegal firearms the second amendment is almost like a national religion it's culturally enshrined it is to the american to defend the uh, the constitution of course is there a, any way possible to change america's culture regarding firearms assault weapons etc well, first of all, let me go back to the Second Amendment. So the Second Amendment was written into the Constitution and mandated that Euro-Americans or European settlers have firearms uh, so that they could be hastily called into militias to exterminate Native Americans. That's really where the Second Amendment comes from. This subsequently was reinforced in the South, where sections of the South were predominantly made up of enslaved Black people. Uh, and therefore, you had mandatory slave patrols, which you had to serve in with a weapon. This is the origins of the Second Amendment. Uh, but that's not what's driving the gun culture. The gun culture is driven by the commercial, the manufacturers, the corporations that make guns, uh, who, who make tons of profit. And then they buy off legislators uh, to make sure uh, that they can saturate the market with weapons. That's the real problem. And, and these lobbyists, you know, our system is completely hostage to corporate money. Uh, the control often write the legislation. That's the, that's the real problem. Uh, and uh, I mean, that's just one example, but you have the banking industry, the fossil fuel industry, they own the system. And, and that would also include the weapons manufacturers. That's, and, and so these, they're never going to legislate against the people who fund their campaigns and put them in office. It's going to happen. Okay, well, that's a subject far bigger than me for this evening. I suppose circling back to your experience from being a war correspondent and reporting in the thick of it, how do you mentally prepare yourself for that kind of work? I mean, seeing... You know the evidence of man's you know worst inhumanity to man and obviously there's the, the worry about your personal safety how do you get into that mental state where you can go out there and do your job well that's what it is a job i mean the same way a firefighter or somebody else has a job with a certain amount of risk 
Um, and I, I started covering the war in El Salvador in 1983, and the older correspondents who were covering the war had all covered the war in Vietnam. And essentially, I learned how to cover war from them. Uh, and that means knowing how to navigate a war zone, uh, which includes a kind of bizarre body of knowledge. I mean, I can tell you immediately the caliber of a weapon once I hear it's fired, uh, knowing the difference between the sounds of incoming and outgoing mortars, uh, understanding where you should be in a battlefield. I mean, all of these are skills that you eventually acquire. Um, that doesn't uh, prevent you from feeling fear. Uh, I think your perimeter of fear shrinks the longer you do it, uh, the, the, the longer you navigate those dangerous environments. But once that perimeter is breached, once you think you uh, are going to, you potentially could be shot, I don't want to pretend in any way that, uh, you know, that isn't uh, absolutely horrifying and, and terribly you know, frightening. I mean, almost, uh, you never want to be paralyzed in a war zone. You know, two things you don't want to do is panic and you don't want to be paralyzed. So people who have a propensity to that don't last long in, in war zones. Uh, either they extract themselves or they get killed because that's, you have to really keep a cool head uh, in terms of survival. All of that said, uh, a lot of it is luck. I mean, I know war correspondents and photographers who uh, I work with who are dead, who didn't do a tenth of what I did. Um, so a lot of it is luck. It isn't all skill. We used to say that the two types of war reporters who die are the really green ones, the ones who come out and do something foolish, and the ones who become very jaded. So, I mean, I covered war for 20 years. I'm covering the war in Kosovo with two other reporters who I'd covered the war in El Salvador with two decades earlier. But the problem is it's like, well, this road looks just like the road I went down in the Congo. It's a, it becomes a little too familiar and you you lose your vigilance. Um, and then also you burn out. I mean, you don't stay physically and emotionally as resilient. I think you keep going back to war zones because the longer you do it, the less you are able to fit into a world not at war. So I have many examples of friends of mine who realized it was time to quit, but they couldn't readjust once they got back into a civil society uh, and they came back like a moth to the flame. Well, most of them were killed. Uh, so uh, I had to will myself out of it. I was, uh, I took a year after the war in Kosovo, I took a year off, uh, took a fellowship at Harvard and then was immediately shipped back to Gaza by the New York Times. I was in ambush at Netzarim Junction, a Palestinian, 19 year old Palestinian kid was shot and killed a few feet away from me were carrying his body up a road. And I realized, you know, you got to stop. Your luck runs out. Everybody's luck runs out. And I did, but it took me probably three years to readjust. You know, you get addicted to those adrenaline rushes. Soldiers call it a combat high. That is real. You don't fit in. You feel alienated. I mean, part of the reason you want to go back to the war zone, it's a bit like a drug addict. You at least are back with people who are imbibing the same drug you are and understand the same perverted world you understand. But, you know, yeah, I carry trauma like anybody who's been in those environments. Uh, that, and that doesn't go away. That's You carry that for the rest of your life. Wow. So, I mean, these are these are many, you've, you've been to many different conflicts that were started for many different reasons in many different parts of the world. Yet, what familiarities immediately jump out at you in terms of, you know, what a conflict produces? What, what things do you see where this is a common thread between 
all the conflicts you've reported from? Well, it elevates those who have a penchant for violence. They take power. And, and in, in a war zone, it's a godlike power. The disparity between those and who have all power, including the power to kill you, uh, and those who have no power is vast. And most people in a war zone have no power. That's part of the problem with covering or when Hollywood or anybody writes about wars, they tend to write almost always about war from the perspective of the person who's carrying the gun. Well, that's a tiny minority in a war zone. The rest of the people in a war zone live in terror and, and constant fear and, uh, and misery. Um, so, yeah, we used to say it takes four, four days for an 18-year-old with an AK-47 to become God. That uh, You can do whatever you want. Uh, I mean, it's why rape is endemic in war and theft and everything else. Uh, so, you know, what what is the common denominator? The common denominator is that those who are most adept at violence dominate. And they're not the people you want running your society, which is why after a war, once they remain in power, it's usually not a very pretty picture. No, that's a good answer. So uh, if anyone has questions in the chat, feel free to put them in and I'll, I'll put the best ones to Chris. So it might be worth turning our attention to Ukraine and Russia now, because on the face of it to a lot of people in a lot of people's mind, that seems a very simple issue, as simple as it, it obviously it can be in terms of conflict. It seems like a huge uh, world power fronted by Putin has, has invaded illegally uh, a, a much smaller country with no justification whatsoever it just happens to be part of europe it's um you know uh, we're seeing images daily from there there's a lot of people commentating on it and i was just wondering how do you view this conflict in terms of what the what what the uh, big powers should be doing in response if anything well not what they're doing because of course what we've given the united states alone 110 billion dollars which is more than the entire military budget of Russia uh, to fight a proxy war. And it's a very cynical proxy war. It's not designed to defend Ukraine, at least in the eyes of Washington. It's, it's designed to degrade the Russian military and destroy Putin. And it'll be Ukrainian blood and Ukraine itself as a country that will be sacrificed to achieve those ends. Zelensky is never going to negotiate as long as he's got the infusion of these kinds of weapons. Now they're talking about uranium depleted munitions, which are useful because they can take out heavy armor, uh, F F-15s, F-16s. I mean, uh, but there's a kind of panic because in a war of attrition, Ukraine can't win. So about half of its power grid is either damaged or destroyed. Um, I know I was in southern Iraq after the first Gulf War. There was no clean water, no electricity, no hospitals, no schools. That's how the U.S. wages war. That's how Russia is now waging war. And that's why they're pumping in all this sophisticated hardware in a desperate bid uh, to turn the tide of the war in Ukraine's favor, because a long war of attrition is one that Ukraine can't win. Uh, but they don't have they don't really have a goal. I mean, they don't know where they're going any more than they did in their in Iraq or in Afghanistan, uh, the uh, you know they don't have any vision of what peace looks like. Uh, even the New York Times ran a editorial a few months ago that said this idea that Ukraine is re going to capture Eastern Ukraine, the Donbass, where ethnic Russians have been living for two centuries, is fantasy. 
Um, but the longer it goes on, the longer something could go horribly, horribly wrong. An errant missile into Poland, I don't know, uh, somebody's decision to use tactical nuclear weapons. These are nuclear devices that don't give off the blast of a major nuclear weapon. I mean, they're just, it's a very, very dangerous, uh, it's not thought out. Um, and the longer it goes on, the more the objectives of the West and of Ukraine are unattainable. So, um, but it isn't going to stop given the amount of, we, we've given more in terms of money, we've given more assistance to Ukraine than we spent almost double. We spent $60 billion a year on the State Department. It's almost double. I mean, it's just, it's nuts. And it's, um, it's cynical and it's dangerous. Uh, and it should have never happened because we should have given Russia guarantees that Ukraine, which sits on its border, that twice in the last century was used as a launch pad for invasions into Russia, first in World War One, and then the Soviet Union, World War Two, would not be NATO. I mean, they see NATO as a threatening force and with much justification. Uh, ask an Iraqi if NATO is a defensive force or a Libyan or Afghan or anyone else. So um it, it it and i think that that expansion of nato was done one in terms of hubris um and two because of profit uh and now and it was totally predictable william burns now the head of the cia in a cable that was leaked by wikileaks talks about keep your hands off of ukraine that this is seen by across the political spectrum in russia as part of and with much justification their national security i mean we're also baiting china in the South China Sea. I mean, imagine if the Russian Navy was conducting maneuvers off the coast of California or Scotland. I mean, how yeah. would we react? So, I mean, you say there that Zelensky obviously will never negotiate so long as he's got the support and backing of America uh, militarily, uh, you know, financially, things like that. But without those things, is it, wouldn't it just be a case of he'd have nothing to negotiate with? It would just essentially be he has to hand over Ukraine to Putin. Well, we, let's go back to the Mink, Minsk agreement. So there was an agreement that the Ukrainians decided not to honor. Um, there was intervention in 2014 uh, in terms of overthrowing a kind of pro-Russian regime and putting in a pro-Western regime. Um, you know, there was a series of incidents that happened. I wrote a, a, a column called Chronicle of a War Foretold that we all knew where it was headed. I mean, we can't deal with the reality as if it's like Venus rising from the sea in a half shell. Um, there are antecedents that go into this. I mean, the tragedy is that Gorbachev, like Yeltsin, and in the early years, like Putin, they wanted to build an economic and security alliance with Europe and with the U.S. The U.S. wasn't having it. You, you can't justify the expansion of NATO and the sales of Western or U.S. weapon systems, NATO weapon systems, unless Russia's uh, painted as an aggressor, painted as the enemy. And clearly in the early years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russian leadership did not was not antagonistic and did not want to be viewed. They wanted to be viewed as an ally and we weren't willing to do it. So, uh, you know, that's part of the tragedy. I mean, people used to say after the war in Iraq went wrong, well, what should we do? And I said, well, we shouldn't have invaded. So we shouldn't have inter interfered in the domestic affairs of Ukraine in 2014. We shouldn't have started a civil war 
uh, in Ukraine with the residents of the Donbass. I think over 14,000 people were killed. Uh, we shouldn't have then uh, turned Ukraine into a de facto NATO country. We trained over 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers, uh, pumped in all sorts of equipment. I think the U.S. had at least 150 military advisors. This is, and Ukraine is not a, a NATO country. It's not, um, we shouldn't have done all this, um, but we have, and now mm -hmm. here we are. Uh, so uh, you negotiate now, you're right, that he, uh, because as things get worse, actually, as we, as things progress and the situation becomes more precarious for Zelensky and for Ukraine, uh, Russia will have less incentive to negotiate. So that's why negotiations are important now. Okay. Well, just uh, moving away from the cheerful topic of war for a moment, uh, talking about your your work in, in prisons and how rehabilitation works, how it doesn't, how, you know, basically we're in huge need for educational programs. And I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the prison system and, and what it does well and what it doesn't do well in your mind in terms of leading to the reform of criminals so they're not just stuck in one huge cycle of offending, returning, offending and, and returning. Well, the goal is not to reform. I don't like to call them criminals. Uh, you know, my students, some of them committed crimes. Some of them are in there for charged with crimes they didn't commit. Um, uh, but I don't look at them as criminals. Um, uh, you know, what does it do well? Well, it enriches the prison industrial complex. And in uh, urban deindustrialized area, it sweeps up all the men and boys. I have students who've been incarcerated since the age of 14 uh, and uh, essentially destroys the cohesion uh, in their communities. And, and we should remember that traditionally African-Americans in the United States are politically the most radical. Um, so prisons like militarized police are the primary forms of social control that have been implemented into deindustrialized area when, when all the jobs went away. So the social bonds that knit people to their communities, work, a sense of place, home ownership, all that stuff's gone. Uh, and with those social bonds eradicated, then you use the coercive measures of a prison system and police. And, and that, of course, uh, gets into the issue of war. We, we uh, spend half of all discretionary spending on the war industry, which means there isn't any money for anything else. The infrastructure in the United States is a wreck. Um, the, 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 the social services are disastrous. Um, I mean, I know your uh, national health insurance is under assault, but we don't even have that. Uh, you have a million people a year in the United States going bankrupt, uh, trying to pay their medical bills, and those are a million people who technically have for-profit insurance. So uh, you, the wars that you spawn at home eventually spawn wars. I mean, you, wars you, you uh, carry out abroad eventually spawn wars at home. And those are the victims of these internal wars are the ones that I teach. Uh, and there's no attempt at rehabilitation. The education programs are gone. The vocational programs are gone. Um, recidivism is baked into the system. When you get out, many people now, the way the system's configured, are getting out actually owing thousands of dollars in fines. Because you get, you can, when you get sentenced, you get fined. Uh, you know, you get 10, 20, 30,000 in fines. But in a New Jersey prison, you're only, if you work 40 hours a week, you're only making $28 a month. 
So they'll extract like, you know, $2 of that every month towards the fine. Well, by the time you get out, you still owe thousands of dollars. You can't get public assistance. You can't get public housing. You can't get hundreds of jobs. Basically, any job that requires a license, including like a barber, you can't get it if you have a felony conviction. Uh, and so that's why after five years, 76% of people who've been in prison return. The recidivism rate is staggering. Um, and I would just juxtapose that. So I teach in the uh, college degree program in the prison offered by Rutgers University. We've uh, produced 189 BA graduates. Of those 189, only one has gone back to prison. So it's less than 1%. Of the 3,000 people who have taken college courses, now some of them may have only taken one course, but of the 3,000 that have taken college courses, only 5% have gone back to prison. So there, we know the, the data is there. We know how to uh, build programs into the prison system uh, that can keep people from going back into prison. But there are a lot of people, a lot of corporations that make a lot of money off that system. And they their lobbyists don't want those programs in there for that reason. And I'm not just talking about the guards and the prison construction companies. I'm talking about the food service, which is privatized, the commissary, which is privatized, uh, the global telelink, the phone service, which is privatized, JPay, money transfer. This is a multi-billion dollar industry. You go back again to the weapons manufacturers and these people control the system. They control the legislative bodies and everything else. So that's why you're not gonna get reform. It's, it's predatory uh, and it, it makes, you know, certain segments of the corporate world extremely rich, extremely profitable. Um, uh, and so they like the system and people say the system's broken. And my argument is no, the system works just the way it's designed to work. So, I mean, I think it's obvious to most people that those incarcerated for violent offences are overwhelmingly overwhelmingly male. It just seems like violence is a, is a predominantly you know male problem globally. And obviously, I don't think people are born that way. It, you know, a lot goes into producing people who are violent and commit offences. And I was just wondering your experiences. Are there common links you can point towards between these these mostly male individuals, whether it be, you know, family life, education, you know, the way they were brought up, things like that. What common themes can you point at that in society that creates men like this? Well, they were brought up in impoverished environments where they didn't have the luxury of being nonviolent. Hmm. And that's really it. I mean, they would get rolled over. And uh, that's what Malcolm so, X understood. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's an environmental factor. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, I, I, there are actually not many killers in prison. I, I've taught a couple of them, but there aren't that many. Um, I mean, people who actually, I mean, most of this stuff, it's in an argument and, you know, uh, drive-by shootings. I was telling my class one time that the Salvadoran soldiers in this war didn't really want to get killed. So... When there was a firefight, they'd lie down and hold their M16 over their head like that and just spray. And then somebody said, oh, that's just like a drive-by. Uh, so most of my students, are the, even the ones who've been committed uh, or, or convicted of murder, are not murderers. Um, I mean, I have story after story. Uh, I have one student, wonderful guy, he was former Marine, big guy, he was in a bar. Somebody offered his girlfriend a line of Coke. They were all drunk. The, his girlfriend went in the room. The guy who offered the coke started raping her, and he went in and killed him. Now he did kill him, um, 
but he shouldn't have gotten 30 years for it. If she'd killed him, she could have defended herself in a court of law. But she didn't happen to be 240 pounds and bench 400 pounds or whatever he benched. I don't know. So, and he's a wonderful guy. He's, he really is. He's actually a good friend of mine now he's out. So, uh, but, you know, it's the environment. I mean, same way as if you're in a war zone. I mean, you, you, to survive, you often have to embrace violence in order to survive. Uh, and, and I think in these gun infested neighborhoods and these Malcolm X called them internal colonies in the United States. It's the same. I mean, my guys who dealt drugs, uh, it's interesting, the really big time drug dealers didn't actually use drugs. Um, but the ones who did really well, they all carried weapons. But it wasn't to kill the police or to kill civilians. It's to kill the groups who preyed on drug dealers because they knew they had money and drugs. So that, you mm. know, in order to protect their business, they had to be armed. That wasn't an option. How do you view Ukraine and Russia, the, you know, their, their conflict now in the context of social media? Because this is something that's new. You've you've uh, had one foot in two worlds, really. You've been to war zones and reported pre-internet and you're, you're engaged on the issue post-internet. And I don't know how engaged you are with social media and things like that, but it's quite possible for people to live a complete alternate alternate reality when it comes to the ukraine and russia conflict you know conspiracism is absolutely rife thanks to social media and various other platforms i was just wondering how has that affected the flow of information in your mind well people don't know who to trust anymore i mean the traditional media has failed the commercial model is different than when i worked as a journalist so it used to be when i worked for the new york times you tried to reach a very broad audience. That meant that there were inevitably things that were was going to be in the paper that your readers didn't like. Now, media organizations cater to a selected demographic. So it's a silo demographic and they feed that demographic what it wants to hear. That's the commercial model. If they don't feed that demographic what it wants to hear, it cancels their subscriptions or begins to attack them on social media. And the danger of that is not only are you catering to that demographic, but at the same time, you're demonizing the opposing demographic. Um, you know, one side you have Rachel Maddow, other side you have Sean Hannity. There's really no difference in what they do. And that's why the credibility of the media has just plummeted, uh, justifiably. Uh, and, and when the media can't be trusted, I think the Reuters Institute said that we have the lowest media credibility rating in the industrialized world. I think it's like 26% or something. So when the media can't be trusted, then uh, sure. I mean, conspiracy theories become rife uh, because there's, you're not grounded in uh, uh, a universe that's based on verifiable fact. Verifiable fact doesn't matter anymore. And the media is completely complicit in this. So we had all the four years of the Trump-Russia saga where papers like the New York Times, CNN, uh, slogged this fantasy that uh, Trump was somehow a Russian stooge. Uh, it was completely false, completely untrue, but it's what their viewers or their readers wanted to hear. And 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 then in the kind of postmortems that have been done, a great New York Times investigative journalist, Jeff Gerth, just did a three-part series, three or four-part series in the Columbia Journalism Review that just he spent two years on that just showed that it was uh, that these charges were completely fictitious. You know, starting with Trump being prostitute, having uh, prostituted women give him a golden shower in the Ritz-Carlton. And it was just salacious garbage. Um, uh, but there's been no 
accountability, no uh, self-reflection, no, they've just pretended it didn't happen. Uh, and that's what's dangerous. So uh, we're in a new media landscape and it one, it's one that feeds conspiracy theorists because the traditional media stopped doing its job. I mean, it was never, let's not romanticize it. I mean, you know, it was always beholden to the centers of power. Uh, if you challenge the dominant narrative, you usually paid for it with your career, as I did, as like Ray Bonner, who I covered the war in Salvador with, you know, not only was he attacked by the Reagan administration, but the paper got rid of him. Uh, so, you know, I don't want to anyway tell you that they were wonderful days, but uh, there and, and the lie of omission is still a lie. And the lie of omission was rife and officialdom, even when it lied, was given far more credibility than it should. And um, the, the when institutions like the New York Times went after people such as myself, that sent a message to all the other editors and reporters, which is don't do this. And both, most of them being good careerists didn't. So I don't want to anyway pretend that it was a wonderful media landscape, but it, it's better than now. Uh, now it's just essentially throwing meat to, uh, you know, to the, to the lions or the, uh, you know, the tigers who, in, who are trapped in your kind of media cages. That's it. Yeah. Whether, whether, that's, wanna... whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I just did want to pick your brains on something a little left field, actually. So uh, a while back, people, I mean, you were very critical of sort of the new atheist figureheads, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, especially critical of Sam Harris and him linking uh, Islamic ideology to fundamentalism and where that might lead us and it seems over the years since we've had like the emergency of emergence of isis where i've had i can't even count how many number of islamic terror attacks have happened just in my own country seems more and more difficult to negate or deny that link between islamic fundamentalism and outcomes such as suicide bombings terror attacks things like that i just wonder if you had any sort of change in mind on that given the emergence of isis and what's followed yeah, well, you know, I, I, it's a subject I know pretty well. I spent seven years there um, in the Middle East. Uh, well, fundamentalists of any stripe, secular, Christian, Islamic, are all cut from the same binary cloth of good and evil and the ends justify the means. I mean, that's the nature of fundamentalism, but that's not exclusive to Islam. I mean, most Muslims don't embrace that ideology. Like we're talking about a tiny percentage, but we have Christian fascists you know, Christian fundamentalists, and I, my argument has been the new atheists are just secular fundamentalists, because remember, they signed on for the whole project to bomb the crap out of the Middle East, uh, not because they the Muslims are satanic, the way the Christian right said, but because they're barbarians who don't understand Western civilization. I mean, these people like Harris, they, 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 they don't understand other cultures. They don't, you know, they don't uh, they're not linguistically, religiously, historically literate. They're responding to a caricature. So uh, are fundamentalists dangerous? Of course. But are, are fundamentalists somehow, uh, you know, does Islam itself produce fundamentalism? No, not any more than Christianity does. What creates fundamentalism is are the social conditions that marginalize people so that they uh, uh, build a kind of, um, you know, uh, ideological justification for their own violence. I mean, you should know that most, and these are all sorts of studies that have been done, most of the members of ISIS or Al-Qaeda, the people who carry out terrorist attacks, don't come out of religious households. They're 
they come out of the criminal caste who then cover themselves with that veneer. And I, I spent a lot of, a lot of sorry to interject, Chris. A, a, a lot of them in Europe, you know, especially the UK, are from quite affluent, educated backgrounds, middle class, educated. Some of them teachers, engineers seem to highly correlate with it. It seems like you can have a very well-educated, socio-economically prosperous individual in the West take up Islamic ideology and travel abroad to fight for ISIS or commit a terror attack in the yeah, country. Is it not that's, fair that's, to say at least that the link is there? No. The I mean, link is, is, is it possible to get from the, the literal, a literal interpretation of Islamic doctrine to act of extremism? No. No, because, I mean, first of all, you know, the Quran forbids suicide. Of I mean, just it's flat out. Uh, there's no the whole notion that suicide bombing is somehow legitimized by Islam is it, there's it's that's completely black and white in the Quran. And when you talk about people like engineers, you and I and I and I covered Al Qaeda in France based in Paris after 9-11. What you're talking about, people who don't have a loss of identity. So they were born in one of the banlieues or they grew up in one of the banlieues outside of Paris. Maybe they, you know, the first few years of a life they spent in Algeria. They're not accepted as French by the French. It's a pretty racist society like the UK, um, but they're not accepted back home as Algerians. So uh, th this, this destruction of identity, uh, I think, is what propels them or makes them susceptible to uh, be embraced by these radical fundamentalist groups. I think that is the primary driving factor that pushes into the arms of these people. Well, I suppose, I mean, that's that's a fair point. I suppose if we were to accept the UK's racist, we also have people uh, of Indian descent, Chinese, Nigerian. It's, it's quite a diverse population. None of the non-Muslim people who have experienced racism are joining genocidal death cults. So I'm, I'm just trying to obviously say you can't generalize about Muslims. Most Muslims are peaceful. Iron, we're, not just... we're not dropping iron fragmentation bombs all over India. We're not demonizing right Hindus. so i mean i, I think mean, you're getting you know, right to the heart of my argument here. so the well the, why would why would a british born muslim have such an attachment to something that was happening in an islamic country were it not for islam no it's because of the rhetoric it's you know i don't know how it was in the uk but after 9 11 in the united states uh just to be muslim was to be considered either a terrorist or a potential terrorist. And that, you know, there are many factors that go into uh, pushing someone into the arms of a radical group like Al Qaeda, identity or loss of identity, lack of identity being one. Uh, but the other is the tremendous demonization of culture, religion, which certainly was true in the United States. I'm not defending what they do. I, I don't like these people. I'm not in any way oh, defending obviously. Them. I mean, it's well, what do you make of sort of their official propaganda around um, Dabiq? Uh, they released a very helpful document entitled Why We Hate You and, and Why We Want to Kill You, something like that, very on the nose uh, for my liking. But it was very explicit in its reasons for why ISIS existed. And not in there really could you find any grievance, grievances about foreign policy or racism. It seemed very much completely wed to these ideas that you can find in Islamic scripture. But it's, that's not true, Stephen. Have you read the Quran? It's just not true. Uh -huh. It isn't. Okay, well, I, I've read it, and I spent seven years in the Middle East, and I can tell you that what creates 
people's views towards reality or towards others is based on the society and culture they live in. Because this is this would be like, you know, there are Muslims in India where men and women worship in the same mosque. I, I was in Bosnia. I mean, I was in Sarajevo. Those Muslims could drink you and me and any other pub crawling Brit under the table. I am not, I am not worried about Muslims generally, specifically. Muslims do not keep me awake at all. I just think there is certainly a strain fundamentalism that you can find from a literal interpretation of the I, I don't think, I don't think fundamentalism, fundamentalism doesn't differ. Christian fundamentalists, and I wrote a book called American Fascists, are just as dangerous as Muslim fundamentalists and Hindu fundamentalists. I mean, Hindu fundamentalism itself is very dangerous. The problem is fundamentalism. But there's, I, I, there is nothing that I saw as an Arabic speaker, as someone who spent seven years in the Middle East, there is nothing uh, intrinsic to Islam that leads to fundamentalism any more than there is anything intrinsic in Hindu scripture or Christian scripture that leads to fundamentalism. I did not find it. So what, why does Islamic, fundament, Islamic fundamentalism seem to top the world rankings in terms of global terror attacks? And obviously the next time a bomb goes off, uh, in my home city or Europe somewhere, we find out it's a suicide bombing, it'd be pretty certain that that person was a Muslim that carried out that attack. Well, Stephen, it's because they don't have an Air Force. <laughs> if they had an Air Force, they could bomb the shit out of us, but they don't. So, uh, you know, that is their response. Uh, and, and, you know, we have to be cognizant of the devastation and death that we spent 20 years visiting on the Muslim world. And to somehow think that there isn't going to be blowback or isn't going to be a response is very naive. It's, in fact, very human. And it has, again, nothing to do with Islam. And it has to do with the aggressive, murderous policies carried out primarily by the United States, but by the NATO alliance against the Muslim world. I would almost be tempted to agree with you there, but I don't see any sort of Vietnamese terrorist attacks playing out daily in the West, Japanese, for instance. The, I mean, obviously, the things you would say about Western forces in terms of who we persecuted, bombed, would ring true, but it doesn't seem to have elicited the same response in terms of terror attacks. It feels like it, we would it, have it, terror it, attacks it, during, from the Islamic world without intervention. But, Stephen, let's go to Vietnam. I mean, there were all sorts of what would be considered terrorist attacks carried out against U.S. civilians and U.S. troops in Vietnam during the war, all sorts, tons, tons. I mean, all right, it, so it, no, no it's, movement. It's, it's, it's ninety, probably ninety-eight percent of Muslims in the in the Muslim world don't like Al Qaeda or ISIS. I, I agree, my... but hundred percent, hundred percent of Muslim fundamentalists would disagree with your take about the Quran. That, that's the issue we have to deal with, surely. Well, you know why? Because they don't actually know the Quran. That is, that is, they're not religiously literate. They, the same way Christian fundamentalists don't know the gospel. And I graduated from seminary. I wrote a book on these people. I spent two years with them. They know only those passages that can buttress their ideology. They don't actually know the Bible. And they, they, they are fed certain snippets or passages that, that support this murderous ideology by these Christian neo-fascists in the same way that Osama bin Laden, who has no religious training, no right to issue fatwas, was feeding it to Al-Qaeda. Same thing. So what, what's the solution here? If we have people, young men, 
who have a completely incorrect interpretation and, and want to carry out acts of terror and say they're doing so not in response to sort of foreign intervention or racism or Western foreign policy, anything like that, but because they feel their faith commands it of them. Is that, who's that an issue for, to sort out? Who, who is that? Who's the responsibility well, it, to it, fix it, this problem? At the end of American fascists, I said, you want to break this movement, you have to reintegrate these people in society and give them a place in society. And the same is true. It's when you're, you know, I worked in Gaza, 10, 20 young men to a room, no work. They can't leave. It's the world's largest open air prison. You know, finally, the only way they can affirm themselves is to become a shahid or a martyr. Because if they do a suicide bombing or they attack an Israeli outpost, then they'll get a big funeral and their pictures will be at least for a day or two up on the walls of whatever refugee camp they're from. We have to give them a place. We have to give them a sense of self-worth. Um, and these radical movements will always be attractive when every other avenue is cut off. All right, Chris, that's a great point to end on. I appreciate your time. I've really enjoyed okay. agreeing with you, listening to you, disagreeing with you, everything in between. Uh, where can people find uh, more of your work if they want to find out more of your writing? ChrisHedges.substack.com. ChrisHedges.substack.com. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for speaking okay, to me. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, bye.